You know how there are things that sound good in theory, but when it comes to actually putting them into practice, suddenly we're not such big fans anymore? Like, somewhere as a kid, most of us do this thing where we say, man, I wish I could eat nothing but candy. Or like, I wish I could eat nothing but chocolate. Some of you would still say, I wish I could eat nothing but chocolate. Um, But in practice, if all we ate was candy, if all we ate was chocolate, that wouldn't turn out so well. Or or another one, some some people have have hit at some point and said, I'm going to restore that old car. That old car that's been in the garage for you, I'm going to restore that car. And the truth is, some people can handle that job. Some people can, and more power to you. Teach me something, because I can't. But I've met quite a few people who had big dreams on something like that and, and very few results. My, my dad has a, a 70s Chevy Nova, I can't remember exactly what year, in the garage that he's, he's retired now, so he started working on it again. I'd love today, someday I'll help him finish the job, because it sounds great in theory that I could have my hands in this and that maybe someday I could drive this car, but I, I know next to nothing about it. it. It sounds good in theory, but it's not so functional in practice. Or, or I'm going to lose 50 pounds which sounds great, until it means changing what you eat and exercising. Or, I'm going to get out of debt. That sounds great, and it's a goal that we should all have. But when we have to make the tough choices, or get rid of cable, or stop eating out for a while, whatever those choices are, it sounded good in theory, but it's a lot more difficult in practice. There are even some statements in the Bible that sound great in theory but become more difficult when it's time to put them into practice. We'll even take some of these verses that are that way, we'll, we'll decorate with them. We'll, we'll put them on a, on a poster and hang it on the wall, or, or, or Grandma will cross-stitch it on a, on a pillow or something, and, and we'll say, these are really nice verses. But some of them, when it's time to put them into practice, it, they're not so cute anymore. They're tough. And one of those verses from Scripture is found in Acts chapter 20. We've studied this passage here in late church before, but, but Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders here. He's preparing to leave the Ephesian church and to leave these guys in charge. And in the second half of verse 35, he quotes Jesus. He says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And it sounds nice, and it's inspiring, And I would hang that on the wall. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It sounds good. It makes me feel good about what I give to God. It makes me feel good about what I give to anybody. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So every time I give, I can feel good about myself. But I often don't live like I actually believe that it is more blessed to give and to receive. Because if I did, if I really lived like I believed those words, wouldn't I be in a constant state of giving? Like if I really believed that that was true, it would be best for me to be giving all the time. Giving God my time and my resources, my energy and my, my money and more, and, and giving to the poor and those in need. If it's more blessed to give than to receive, and I want to be blessed, and I would certainly think we, we want to be blessed by God, then we should truly be in a constant state of giving. But we're not, because we like stuff. We amass wealth and things, and, and literally stuff. There's no other word for some of it. Stuff we need, stuff we want, stuff we don't need, stuff no one needs, 
Some of you are thinking about that drawer or that closet where all that stuff no one needs is in your house. We collect it. Sometimes we hoard it. We like to receive. We like to retain. And even though we believe what the Bible says, even though we believe that it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive, we oftentimes live like it's more blessed to receive than to give. And yet there's this principle found throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that points to generosity being a key piece of what a Jesus follower should look like. And if we truly understand and embrace the fact that it is more blessed to give than to receive, generosity, even irrational generosity, is the result of that. Now what does that have to do with the idea of multiplication, which is, which is our, our series we're in right now? You know, multiply is the title of this series, so it, it has to tie in. And it does, because I, I believe that while there are limits to our generosity, there, there are human limits to our generosity, God has the power to multiply the effect of our generosity. When we give of our time or our resources or our money or our energy, I believe that God can and does take what we give and multiply the effect making a bigger difference in those situations, making a bigger difference in people's lives, whatever it is, making a bigger difference than we could ever make on our own. Craig Rochelle, pastor of Life Church in Oklahoma, he put it this way, and I love this. He said, what you keep is all you have. What you give, God multiplies. What you keep is all you have. What you give, God multiplies. And the first time I read those words, I, I, I didn't quite grasp it, so I went back over it a few times and really gave it some thought. And it says to me that the best thing we can do with the gifts and the talents and the resources and the money and the energy and all the things that God has given us, the way that we can use those gifts that God has given us, because they absolutely are gifts, the way that we can use them best is to turn around and give them away. And in that, they'll be multiplied. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus said this, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Giving away what God has blessed us with, it's the directive, it's the goal. It's what we're supposed to do according to Scripture. And in that, we are not left with nothing, but often more because that's how God works. He's a multiplier. And we understand the first part of that verse in Luke 6.38. We give and you will receive. We, we get that. But then there's this, this language that we may not understand. Press down, shaken together to make room for more. Well, to understand that terminology means we need to understand some things about the audience that Jesus was talking to when he said these words. A good portion of his listeners at this time would have had at least a basic understanding of farming. I don't really have a basic understanding of farming. I definitely don't have a basic understanding of farming at that time. But that's how a lot of these people made their living. And so this particular idea that Jesus references here, pressed down, shaken together, comes from harvesting wheat. If you worked as a wheat harvester back then, wheat was collected in baskets, and the baskets were quite large, but wheat ended up being quite heavy. And so most of the time, you would only fill your baskets 
half or a little more than half full because you'd have to carry them from the place of harvest to the place of storage or processing. And so what happened quite often was that if you worked for a particularly generous landowner, he'd tell you that the last basket you fill this week is your pay. The, the last basket that you fill is yours to keep. So you've worked all week. The last basket you fill before quitting time, that's your pay. Now, getting, getting paid in, in wheat was not necessarily bad. I mean, it probably wasn't as good as paid in cash, but that was part of how they made this work. They'd pay you in your last basket. Now, here's the question. How full would you fill the last basket? Pretty full. <laughs> would you worry about keeping it lighter because you had to carry it so far? Not if you're the one that gets to keep it. And so what they would do is they would press it down and shake it together and keep working to make as much room as possible for wheat. If you want a modern-day example, when you leave today, stop at Sheets and get a slushy cup, right? Icy, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you put the lid on it that's made for the slushy cup, and you pull the little thing, and it's fun, and it'll expand a little bit. But once you get it full, pound it on the counter a couple times. Shake it down. Make sure that you've filled it as much as you can. Now, don't be that person who takes a big sip and then fills it. That's, that's cheating. But shake it down until you have extra space and then top it off. Keep doing that until you can't do it anymore. Obviously, if the last basket of wheat is yours, you're going to fill it up more than any other basket. You're going to get every bit of wheat in there that you can. And so that's where this terminology Jesus uses comes from. So it's like God takes what we give and he shakes it down and he tops it off. And in that, it multiplies. Now, I want to make a quick point of emphasis here and make sure that we're clear about something. It, in the church, there seems to be two extremes that I want to make sure that we uh, avoid in our study. I want to make sure we stay somewhere in the middle here. One extreme is what's typically called the prosperity gospel. There are, there are some that believe that we're meant to be rich and that when we give, God will turn around and make us rich. Some believe that faith alone can lead to wealth and that if you're not wealthy, if you're not killing it financially, you must be doing something wrong spiritually. You must lack faith. In truth, that is most certainly, without a doubt, a gross distortion is really the only way to put it of what actually is found in Scripture. And truthfully, it's downright dangerous to believe that way. Because I've known an awful lot of faith-filled people who weren't, who weren't wealthy in our terms. They didn't need to be. On the other side, and equally as dangerous, is what could be called the poverty gospel. Now, you may not have met as many people who, who fall into this category. But as you can imagine, that's where people believe that if you're blessed financially, if you are killing it financially, that means you're messing up spiritually. That wealth and status are in fact signs of sin and spiritual barrenness. And again, this is wrong because Scripture does clearly show us that God blesses people, and sometimes that blessing is financial. Sometimes it's health. Sometimes it's relationships. It's one of the blessings that can come from God. But blessings in general are promised by God, not specific ones. And so, and so really, both of those extremes are dangerous. You see, it isn't about what you have or don't have and that, that relating somehow to your faith level. It's about acknowledging God's blessings in your life, and it's about how you respond to those blessings. And how you respond to God's blessings says an awful lot about the condition of your heart. And if we want to break it down to basics, our response 
to God's blessings, very simply put, should be generosity. Paul writes about generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and so I want to walk through um, that chapter today and see what we can learn about generosity. One thing that Paul does through his writings, um, and, and a, a good chunk of the New Testament Paul, Paul wrote, um, one thing that he often does is he uses different churches and different people as examples to other churches and other people. He, he's not afraid to bring up something good or something bad that another church has done um, as an example to teach the church that he's currently writing to. And that's what's happening here. Paul has used um, this idea. He, he knows that there is a blessing and offering coming from the Corinthian church. They've promised to give. And so he uses um, them as an example for the Macedonian church. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. For I know how eager you are to help, and I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you in Greece, you at the Corinthian church, were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. And so Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, he says, I used you as an example of generosity. And before their gift had even come, their generosity inspired generosity. And yet here's Paul talking to them about generosity again. It's important that we understand that true generosity has no limit, no end point. True generosity is continual. He goes on, he says, but I'm sending these brothers to be sure you are really ready as I've been telling them, and that your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one giving grudgingly. Now this is interesting. Paul is making sure that he wasn't bragging on the Corinthian church for no reason. I think at times we give ourselves more credit for being generous than we deserve. We give money or time or resources and we pat ourselves on the back when in truth we could have done more. But Paul makes an important point of clarification here that if the gift comes out of obligation or even would come because Paul asked them to give, that's not the kind of gift that he's looking for here. True generosity comes from a willing heart. He goes on, he says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And the idea that planting more seeds will result in a more generous crop seems like simple logic. But that simple logic doesn't always carry over for us into our actions. It's important to understand that broad generosity, a lifestyle of generosity, a consistent drive to be generous, makes a greater impact than small bursts or moments of generosity. And again, Paul hits the motives of generosity. This seems to be a theme for him. He considers this important or he wouldn't bring it up again. True generosity comes from a willing heart and not from obligation. He continues in verse 8, And God will generously provide all you need. 
Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. You know what that verse says to me? It says, even if I give away everything I have, even if I give away all my money, all my time, all my resources, God will make sure I'm taken care of and have what I need. We struggle so hard with this because we hold tightly to what we need, and if we are generous, we're generous with the excess. That that tends to be our typical way we function. It's easier to be generous with a Christmas bonus or some unexpected blessing than it is with the money and resources we count on day by day. And that, I mean, that makes sense. And yet when we're generous, even with the day-to-day, God will provide what we need. Verse 9, he quotes a previous passage of Scripture. He says, as the Scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and produce a great harvest of generosity in you. And in this, we find the principle that truly drives the whole idea of generosity in the first place. That God is the one who gave us everything we have. Anything that we're generous with, anything that we give away, time, energy, resources, any of it, is something that God was already generous enough to give to us. And so if the giver asks us to be generous with what he's given, I mean, that's what we ought to do. He goes on in verse 11. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. And much like them, this needs to be true for us that our generosity results in needs being met and God being glorified. And he finishes this up, verse 13 and following, as the result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. See, here's the thing about generosity. Like we talked about earlier, we like the idea of it. But it's harder to put into practice. And if we made a list of qualities that make it likely that someone is a follower of Jesus, if we made a list and we said, here's all the qualities that would tell me, even if I didn't know for sure, I assume this person follows Jesus because all of these things are true about them. Generosity would probably not be that high on our list. And yet it's important we understand that what Paul wrote here is true. He said, for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient obedient to the good news of Christ. If our generosity comes from the right place, from the right motivation. That generosity screams Jesus' follower. The problem, at least in recent history, is that Christians have not been carrying the generosity flag the way we used to. There's an oncoming generation that has proven to be pretty generous, but many of them are generous fully apart from any relationship or any belief in Jesus Christ. 
There are people who think Christians are selfish and self-serving and divisive and discriminatory and unloving and even hateful. And unfortunately, some Christians have, have, have proven them true. There are people who don't see generosity as a description of any Christian they've ever met. That's really, 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 really sad. But we have the power to change that. It doesn't happen overnight, but God has blessed us with so much, how could we ever justify holding on so tightly to the blessings that he's given us? Listen, I struggle with this as much as anybody. I do. I want so badly to make sure that my needs and my family's needs are met first. I want so badly to make sure that, all, that they have everything they need and really everything they want first. I consider that a big part of, of being a husband and a father. I also have things that I want. And sometimes I put those pretty close to the top of my priority list. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, make sure your needs are met and then be generous. Nowhere does it say, make sure you're happy and you have what you want and then be generous with the rest. It doesn't say that. I looked. Instead, it's very clear from our study today and from many other places in Scripture that generosity needs to be at the forefront of who we are. And I believe that any shortfall that results from our generosity, God will make a way. That sounds irrational. It sounds irresponsible. And yet God calls us to be irrationally generous. You know, it's, it's hard for me through this, actually through this whole series, it's been hard for me not to go back to this passage. And we, we, we read this in the first message of the series. But to me, it's the best example of irrational generosity in Scripture. In Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. It is simply not rational to give God every single thing you have. It's not rational. Rationality is a human thing. It's not rational to give all you have, but God doesn't call us to rationality. He calls us to generosity. Let's pray. God, you truly have blessed us with so much, so much that we take for granted. You've given us life, given us the opportunity to, to be alive today to wake up this morning, to breathe in oxygen, to be here together, to sing your praises, to, to, to spend this time in your word. You, you've given us so much just today. And God, we're going we're gonna to eat food today, and we're going we're gonna to be indoors today. We have heat today on a cold day. And, and that just scratches the surface of, of all that you've given us just today. God, we take for granted some of what you give, but God, help us to see it, everything we have, for what it is, gifts from you. And help us to know that you didn't give us those gifts to, to hold on to them tightly, to cling to them. 
but that you gave us those gifts to turn around and be generous in your name. And so God, if, if it's time, help us, help us to give our time. If it's, if it's money, if it's resources, help us to give freely. If it's energy, God, wear us out if we're doing what you've asked us to do. God, with everything that you've given us, help us to be generous. God, I pray that you would, you would help us to focus as we continue in our service, as we move into a time of communion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.